This is The Rock Island in Arkansas, a look at the history of the railroad, its operations in the state, and in this episode, we'll hear first-hand experiences from three longtime engineers, Harold Rhodes, Buddy Bryant, and Howard Smith. A lot of times we'd run 75 and 80 miles an hour. Now on a steam engine, if you're running that fast, it was vibrating and shaking so badly you couldn't walk without holding on to something. Coming out of Memphis is when it was a headache. You got all a handful of orders at Kentucky Street, and you had to read the things, but there you was fighting your way across that Harrahan Bridge and down that hill. You had to cross the Frisco. The mop was down there, and it, and it was something else. When we knew within reason that the Rock Island was going to fold, you knew you were going to lose your job. You wondered what you were going to do. And I got to the point, I thought at times I was going to die. We'll also get an update on a project to preserve the Rock Island Depot in Perry, Arkansas. Since my last episode, the depot has been listed on the National Register of Historic Places. That will open the door for additional grant funding to help cover the cost of restoration work, but matching donations will be needed. That's just ahead. Oh, the Rock Island Line, she's a mighty good road. That Rock Island Line is a road to ride. Rock Island Line, she's a mighty good road. If you want to ride it, got to ride it like you find it. Get your ticket at the station, the Rock Island Line. For nearly 80 years, the Rock Island was one of the major railroads in Arkansas, transporting passengers and freight. It had a huge footprint, at one point operating about 700 miles of track in the state. The Rock Island's depots and stations were the center of activity in many towns and cities, especially when passenger trains were still running. Many who worked for the Rock Island called it a family railroad and say they didn't learn just how much of a family until after the railroad shut down. This is the Rock Island in Arkansas, an accompaniment to the book of the same name released by Arcadia Publishing. Here's Michael Hiblin. On this program, we'll hear three longtime friends share stories of working for the Rock Island. Harold Rhodes, Buddy Bryant, and Howard Smith started in the years after World War II, initially working as firemen until being promoted to engineers. Two of the three experienced the final years of steam locomotives, all had plenty of crazy adventures, near misses, and commiserate here about the often mundane or frustrating things they went through as the railroad declined before being shut down in 1980. The three sat down together to swap stories in April 2003. I'll also include segments of a one-on-one interview Rhodes recorded seven months earlier. Sadly, all three have since died but their stories live on, thanks to Tom Sandlin, a former Rock Island employee who later went into law enforcement. He realized the incredible value of oral histories at a time when many Rock Island employees were dying. For a decade after his retirement, Sandlin traveled around the country, recording hundreds of in-depth interviews with former employees of the railroad. Around Christmas of 2020, I met with him near his home in Texas and picked up several box loads of cassette tapes. I'm now working to digitize those interviews and post the audio online. 
The interviews you're about to hear came from those tapes. First, here's Harold Rhodes talking with Sandlin in Little Rock on September 30th, 2002, about his earliest experiences on the Rock Island. My name is Harold Rhodes. I'm 73 years old, soon to be 74. I uh, worked for the Rock Island Railroad for, until, from 1951 until they went into bankruptcy. And then I went to work for Missouri Pacific and retired off the Union Pacific in 12 years ago. My seniority date on the Rock Island was July the 5th, 1951. And of course, when you hire out on the railroad, go to work for a railroad before they'll let you work, you've got to make student trips. I was hired out as a, as a fireman at the time, and uh, they still had steam engines. We, uh, we had steam engines for probably a year and a half uh, before they completely disappeared from the Rock Island. Rock Island had oil burners. They didn't have coal burners, they had oil burners. And starting out, as a new person on a railroad, it's your, your I, I think the best way to describe it is you're lost. You feel lost. And everything is just, uh, you just don't understand what's going on, to be honest with you. And I can remember two of my student trips. The first one I went, uh, went out here on a passenger train to Boonville, Arkansas, with a friend of my dad's who was firing on the, the rocket, and just because I wanted somebody I knew when I got on this train. Coming back, we came back on a freight train. He wasn't with me. I didn't know the two people I were with, the engineer and the fireman. And I can remember somewhere between Little Rock and Boonville, the fireman went back and had three units, and he had to go back and check the engines to be sure they were operating properly. And he came up in a minute, and he told the engineer, he said, I need you to come back here and look at something wrong with one of the engines. I need you to come back and look. And the engineer got up and left, and left me in the cab of the engine by myself. Scared me to death. I didn't know what to do. I didn't do anything. I just sat there. But later on, I guess the next trip I made, I left here on a steam engine going to Jones Mill, Arkansas. With they, they went to Jones Mill and switched the mill and came back to Little Rock. And as soon as we left here, uh, the fireman put, the regular fireman put me in the fireman's seat and showed me where the firing valve was and how to handle the water and said, here, do it. Yeah, that's, how you, that's how you learned on the railroad to say, here, do it. And everything was pretty smooth. We got about 12, 15 miles south of town down here to a place called Vimy Ridge and going around a curve and we hit tar two torpedoes, which in itself scared me because I never heard the sound. If you don't know what torpedoes are, they sound like shotguns going off. They're about the same amount of noise. And that scared me and, and of course the engineer, he reached up and he, and he shut the throttle off completely and I didn't shut the firing valve off and flooded the thing with oil and black smoke came down the cab and everywhere else and I thought we was dead. I really seriously thought we were dead. <laughs> but finally, I made my student trips. You had to make, at the time, about four or five, which incidentally you did on your own. You paid for your own meals, you paid for anything else. Rock on didn't uh, give you any subsistence whatsoever. And. Uh, First, my very first job was they called me at about three o'clock in the morning to Deadhead to Brinkley, Arkansas. They had a switcher at the time, and it was a they used steam engine down there. That worked uh, from Brinkley to Far City, Arkansas, three days a week, and it worked to Stuttgart, Arkansas, the other two days a week. So that Deadhead was an omen, really. I spent a lot of time Deadheading over the next 25, 30 years. But anyhow, we I got along pretty good. I, uh, about the 
let's see, Saturday, the last day I was down there, we had to go to Stuttgart, and we got over to uh, Mesa, Arkansas, on the main line, which is where the branch line ran down Stuttgart. And here there was an old rock on dentist, Doc Montgomery, never will forget him. He had one eye, kept looking at the other one, you know. And uh, old Lyde, Lyde Snyder was the engineer, and Lyde lets Doc Montgomery get up there and run the engine, and me trying to fire it. And I was doing well, you know, with a good engineer, but uh, we started down that branch, and that old man liked to wore me out. He'd open that throttle wide open, and he'd shut it off. And he'd open, and he'd shut it off. And I was trying to keep up with that firing valve. The term deadheading, if you're not familiar with it, means moving a train without passengers or freight to get it or a crew in position for another trip. Here's Rhodes, recorded seven months later, joined by Buddy Bryant and Howard Smith. This was in Little Rock on April 16th, 2003. Ride the steam engine. You ever, you've ridden steam engines, I guess. You never did? You ride a steam engine 50 60 miles an hour, it's an experience. It's a lot, a lot different than riding a diesel engine. Fat banging around? Yeah, it, it, it tends to rock more than a diesel locomotive will. I didn't, I fired, what, for about a year, I think, before the steam was gone. Howard, he, of course, he was there four or five years before I was. He grew up with the diesel, more or less, than I did too, really. This is Howard Smith. One of, one of the trips that I can remember very, very clearly was going west on a steam engine and uh, was out at the Murray Locking Dam going around the bluff. And at this particular time, the steam engines were being phased out of the railroad and diesels were coming in and they were not putting any more money into the steam engines than they absolutely had to. Consequently, they were very bad repair. We were out there about uh, locking down and one of the flues blew out of this steam engine and that put raw steam into the firebox and on out the door and <clears throat> I climbed out the fireman's side and over the window there's a big rail which you could hang on to and I was holding on to that. The engineer got up in front of his uh, seat as far as he could and naturally the, the steam just went down to zero rapidly and uh, the, when that happened the air brake air compressor stopped and the brakes set up on the train and we were out there dead like you might say dead in the water <laughs> we didn't have radios then and uh, there was no way to tell anybody what the problem was. We couldn't tell a conductor. And so uh, the engineer, he had gotten a little bit of uh, burn from the steam, but not enough to be too serious. And so uh, he, I told him to go on back to the back and I put the train and uh, the brakes, all, all the brakes in position to be towed back in and uh, then I had the duty of carrying his grip and my grip on this ballast, which was about the size of your fist about there, for about a half a mile back to the caboose of that train in the dark without a light. That was uh, quite an experience on a steam engine. Anyway, uh, we got back to the caboose and 
told them what was wrong and they got a hold of the dispatcher and and then they sent uh, I believe the road phone of engines came out there in his car and uh, took us back into Biddle to the uh, to the shops and uh, my experience on steam engines was just one every trip was a just almost a complete failure. I mean, something would happen very badly on every trip, you know. When Harold was talking about uh, the engines vibrating. Uh, when we had steam engines uh, on our passenger trains, uh, they'd run them just, they, they had no speedometers on the steam engines, on the ones that we had. Now, the later ones had steam speedometers, but the ones we had didn't have any speed on and, uh, we would uh, run around 75 or 80 miles an hour, and we'd determine our speed by looking at, at the milepost markers on along the road, and we'd check and see how we was going. And uh, we we were running a lot of times. We'd run 75 and 80 miles an hour. Now on a steam engine, if you're running that fast on these older steam engines. Uh, it was vibrating and shaking so badly you couldn't walk without holding on to something. You had to hold on to something or you'd, you'd be down. And then you was trying to keep the thing uh, hot, enough steam going and uh, water, where you won't run out of water on the water glass. <laughs> and uh, I spent most of my time on the, on the steam engine staring at the water glass and the steam gauge. <laughs> That's right. I did too. I went over the whole railroad for years there, and I never, never knew what was going on on the outside because I, you had to watch it. And different engineers had different techniques of how to adjust the throttle and the uh, reverse lever to where they would get the most efficiency out of the uh, steam and use the least amount of water. And that was one of the big issues on, on a steam engine is never run out of water because when you run out of water, that that, that was it. You, you're dead in the water again. You blow up. You're dead in the water. And uh, some some of the engineers could go past water stops to the next one without any problems, and others they'd have to stop at every water stop to get water. And uh, that was a big that was a big yeah, an engineer can make it harder on the fireman. Even on an oil burner, we had oil burners. They yeah. they went in oil back in the, Rock Island went in oil back in the 20s when they discovered oil down in El Dorado and out in Oklahoma. But an engineer could wear, wear a fireman out even with an oil burner. Yeah. Uh, I, I went to uh, Pratt, Kansas one year during the wheat rush, and I got, was, I got to fire one of the newest steam engines that the Rock Island ever had. It was a 5100. And uh, they were all roller bearings. All the journals and, uh, and the drivers were all on roller bearings. And they had water pumps. You didn't have regular injectors like we had on the other steam engines. And they, they were just like getting out of a T-model Ford into a Cadillac. It's, it's just, it just would be a good comparison to get on one of those new 5100 engines. They were just—you could shut the throttle off, and they would glide along there just as smooth as you could imagine, and no problem on keeping the water. You could—you could adjust the water with your water pump, with the valve there. 
it was really, really something to be able to get on one of those. But uh, I didn't get to fire those, but about two or three months out there, and they called me back to those other ones. Uh, that's all I want to tell you right now. I'll let the Buddy have over here. I'm Buddy Bryan. I'm the youngest one of these two. When I quit working for the railroad, I had 45 years. I worked the Missouri Pacific. Oh, just about, what did we work? About, about nine years. Yeah, about nine. Well, Rock Island for 30 years, then Missouri Pacific about 10, then the Union Pacific swallowed them up. And uh, when Harold retired, that left me to being the only, the, the last Rock Island engineer out there on the system. And I wasn't very well liked either. <laughs> uh, I went to work for the railroad to Rock Island in 1952. I was going to UALR with a uh, deferment, uh, and my dad said, oh, you're wasting your time throwing your money away. Quit that thing out there. I was going to school to be a dentist. So I did. I quit, and they, they promised me that I'd, I'd get drafted when I quit. And sure enough, about two or three months later, I got a, a request to go in the Army. And luckily, I went to Germany during the Korean War and spent all my time in Germany. And when I came back... They didn't have any uh, steam engines left. I was told, I think they might have had one. And the road foreman told me, he said, if they call you for that steam engine, said, don't accept the call because we're getting rid of it and you don't have to fool with that. So I think my first job was maybe a hostler, a hostler helping job in Memphis. And that went on for a while. And then I came back to Little Rock or Biddle and uh, worked out of there. But I never did have, never did uh, work on a steam engine, so I don't know anything about one at all. I always worked uh, on, on diesel. And uh, at that time, we had a whole lot of old alcoves, which was really a pile of junk. And then we later, we got some EMDs, and uh, just before they shut down, we had some real good equipment. And I don't know how in the world they acquired that because they were in such bad shape financially. But when Harold quit, I, we, he and I both were working for Union Pacific, and I believe he was working a day job and I was working an afternoon job and when he quit, well then I got his job and worked it for, I don't know, what, three or four years, something like that. That's Buddy Bryant along with Howard Smith and Harold Rhodes. You're listening to The Rock Island in Arkansas. I'm Michael Heplin. I'll note this conversation was recorded with one microphone being passed around among the three. Starting as firemen, they worked with engineers who had been hired decades earlier and, as Buddy Bryant said, could be difficult to work under. You used to work with an engineer, uh, Charlie who? Charlie Henson. Henson, Charlie Henson. Thank you, Henson. Yeah, he said, now, Buddy, get over here and run this train. And I said, but I'll tell you one thing. He said, you, want, you run it the way I want you to run it or you won't run it. He said, now, when you get to be the engineer, you can do what you want to do, see. A lot of them had that opinion or felt that way, you know. Like I was coming out of Memphis, running from Oregon, or Dick Easterly, he said, Dick Easterly there, I'd been on vacation and I was firing for, I don't know, whoever. And when I came back, he was a very undesirable engineer to work for. Nobody wanted to work for him or with him. But I got swapped off and there I was working with him. And uh, he said, I want you to forget everything these other engineers have taught you and we're going to start all over again. Big Easter. I came out of Memphis one night with him on passenger trains, and it was real cold. And he said, "Buddy, I'm going to open this valve down here." They said, "Cap heaters they had up there." Well, all in the world he was doing was draining the water out of the engine, and we run out of water. He hadn't even hardly got out of Memphis, but the thing was out of water. And, and I knew what he had done, but I, I couldn't say anything about it. And they came over there with the freight diesel or engine and put it on the front of the passenger train. We came in the little rock with that, but. Uh, 
you, you couldn't be critical of the way they operated. I mean, they was the boss. Well, they had been around, you know. Yeah. Most of the old engineers had they've gone to work before the Depression. Oh. A lot of them, uh, and they come back after the Depression, and and they were they were a different breed than the younger, the ones that came along after us. As a matter of fact, when we we had younger men come in, and they, they were all basically really good engineers. Oh, they yeah. turned out to be real good. Well, I say, uh, but guys a little older than us, Howard, Buddy. Flippin', uh, Morgan Fowler, Armstrong, they were good engineers. Sure they were. But these old men, they left a lot to be desired. And you couldn't say anything to them. That's like Floyd Boggs, hard-headed old rascal. I mean, his head was hard of that. And the first job I caught with him, uh, we got out to Maul Mill, I guess, first water hole, and I was out of water. You know, and it was just the way he was running the engine, I, it was partly my fault, you know. Yeah. And we finally made it to Boonville, and, uh, and he, he wouldn't even get up and help. And uh, coming back, we got to Perry and I had to take on water again. And I told him, I said, now, mister, I said, I don't know you. I said, but somebody told me there's a hill right out of here. I said, you're going to have to help me if we're going to get over that hill. We ain't going to have no damn water. <laughs> but I'll tell you how hard-headed it was. Years later, it was 1958, I can remember, because it was Frank Brawl's first year as head coach of Arkansas. He came out of Boonville. He and J.D. Parker was his fireman. And they had a... a section man or some that worked on the track riding as a passenger I think he'd come out of Howe was going to Ola and it, it was not uncommon you know the guys wanted to get home well after they left Boonville uh, uh, Floyd found out he's back there and he told JD he said I'm gonna stop down here and you go put him off and JD said no I'm not gonna put him off he said if you want him off you go put him off so he stopped it was dark couldn't see where he was I mean you know was going to go back there and put him off and got out on the footboard and slipped and fell and he was, he was on a bridge and killed him. Now, yeah. Just think, you know, hard-headed old men. I, unfortunately, I knew some of them. My dad ran a service station over on the east side close to Rock Island Railroad to the yards and he knew, I knew a lot of them as a kid. But a lot of them I didn't know. I, I, you know, I got, I was young. We were all young when we went to work and it was a long time before I called some of them by their first name. I said it was a Mr. So-and-so. Yeah, and then they didn't like that because they thought you were making fun of them, Mr. This and Mr. That, you know, and then, I don't know. That's kind of the way we were brought up. That's, well, that's the way I was brought up. Well, they're talking about these older men. Now, we had another group of men in there that came in during the war that were uh, 4F. They couldn't qualify to be a soldier. And they, they were Make fresh. They them. were fresh out of the out of the cornfield. What they were, we had about six or seven of them like that, and most of them were uh, alcoholics, and uh, that was a very very uh, strict rule that the railroad tried to enforce was the uh, use of alcohol, and uh, these guys they would do everything that they could to get around the uh, officials on this alcohol business. But uh, most of them had not even, uh, I'd say 90% of them had never even uh, finished high school at all. Most of them, maybe fourth or fifth, sixth grades. About all they had. <coughs> it bothers you to work with someone like that. I'll tell you a story that I wasn't involved. That could happen probably about the time Howard went to work maybe. They had a, we had a passenger train, 111 night train, went out of Memphis and went, went to the West Coast, actually. But uh, they had a, 
they left Little Rock one night, and a old man named Martin was the engineer, and he had a fireman, McDaniels, a young yeah. McDaniels, and uh, new, he was new. And they had train orders to meet a eastbound freight train out here at uh, Pulaski. It had siding out here, just to, it was actually in the city limits. Well, uh, no, I take that back. They didn't have a meet with him. They had a wait at a certain time, such and such time. Well, they got out there, and the old man, Martin, was going to run the, the wait, and Mag Daniels kept telling him and telling him, and he told him just to sit over and shut his mouth and sit down, and they went right around that curve. It was a curve out of Pulaski and run up in the head on in that freight train. The old man, Martin, got killed, and the engineer, Grady Hur was on the freight train. He saw what was going to happen, and he, these these steam engines had a big old asbestos curtain between the cab and the firebox, I mean, and the tender, and he just wrapped himself up in that. The fireman, he jumped off about the time they hit and they cut his leg off. And McDaniels, I, I, I know he didn't, I guess he, he jumped just jumped off. off. He jumped yeah. off. He was on the passenger. Yeah, he's on the passenger. Well, the siding was Pulaski, and the next siding was Pinnacle. They might have been confused there. Pinnacle yeah. and Pulaski, yeah. see. But you had a, you know, like I said, McDaniel was, then was a fairly young man and knew it fine. And you, and we were all the same way when you went to dealing with old head engineers. You know, you had, you didn't hesitate to say anything this to them. Yeah, right. To age and yeah, they're supposed to know what they're doing. <laughs> but. That, that's that's part of what goes on on the railroad that you never read about in the paper or right. anything. And I've told a lot of people. Uh, they uh, they see an engineer sitting up there blowing the whistle. They think that that's the softest job in the world. But uh, you put yourself in that engineer's seat, and <clears throat> you'll have a hundred cars that you'll just have a near misses with. And then you'll have the next one will be a dead hit. That's Howard Smith along with Harold Rhodes and Buddy Bryant. You're listening to The Rock Island in Arkansas. Here Smith begins a conversation about train orders and the challenges of time requirements. Back in the days when we operated by train orders, uh, you'd go by a red board and they'd have the orders out and you'd reach out and get the orders running 25, 30, 40 miles an hour, depending on what you're doing. And uh, you'd get those paper train orders and you might have six or seven train orders that you get up there. And if they had one that was restricting you, they were supposed to stop you there. But they might have had one where the, his time would run out in another 15 or 20 minutes, you know, and they would maybe wouldn't stop you, you know. And uh, I remember one time we came through Brinkley and uh, old Pappy Henson was the engineer. We was on a steam engine, and we got the orders, and uh, they always give the head end two sets of orders, the engineer and the fireman, each had a set of orders. And uh, I looked over, the, we was running about 25, 30 miles an hour, and I looked over at the engineer after he got his orders, and all I could see was train orders floating in the air. <laughs> he, he had let them get away from him, see, and they went out to window everywhere. Naturally, I had mine, and... It's, it's always a problem with those train orders, and a lot of them uh, at night. Now, you cannot imagine yourself at night, armed full of orders, and the lights on those uh, engines, steam engines now, were the, uh, 
they had a steam driven generator on that engine that generated electricity for those lights. And a lot of the lights were real dim and you had to have real good eyesight to read them. So it was a big, big problem back there that day. Well, you know, talking about train orders, you could get in a rut, you know, you, a lot of the orders, you, you got them every day. It was same writing, same writing, same writing. And I was going east one day on nine, uh, on something, and he all, when you got to Brinkley, they always gave you an order, 111 has arrived and departed. That was just normal. So I grabbed the order. We got halfway over to Wheatley and looked. I didn't have an order, 111 has arrived and departed. So I called, I stopped over and called the dispatcher, and I, I asked him, I said, has 111 arrived and departed Brinkley? He said, yes, it had. And I got back on the train. Mm -hmm. Talking about train orders, coming out of Memphis is when it was a headache. You got all a handful of orders at, uh, was it, Kentucky Street, I guess. And you and you had to read the things, but there you was fighting your way across that Harrahan Bridge and down that hill. You had to cross the Frisco. The mop was down there, and, and it was something else. Yeah. We come out, I come out of Boonville one night with Clyde Sharon. Clyde, uh, he's a good old boy, but I could have killed him this night. And we uh, went over to Waveland headed in, waiting on the local, really. And then we had some time on 991 on further down the road, you know. So we sat there and sat there and finally the local, we had a brand new brakeman, I don't know what he was, who he was, I don't remember. But finally the local, it's middle of the night too, you know. Finally the local went by and here I got a man on the caboose, conductor, and nobody said a word. And he went and lined up and I said, well, we'll go over to Belleville for 991 or 51, whatever they called it then. So we got out of there and I got started real, got to speed up real good and this brakeman come up there and he said, Mr. Rose, and I said, what? He said, he said, I think there's a problem. <laughs> problem, I said, what? He said, you need to look at your train orders. And I looked down at my, I read them real close and we did not have time to go to Belleville and get in the clear. And uh, Clyde sat over there and the conductor and the, they were all in a hurry. And I told Clyde, I said, I ought to wring your damn neck. He said, didn't you know that? He said, ah, you'll make it. <laughs> so I called them on the radio and found out they weren't anywhere near, but. Funny you could have gotten, yeah, and no, it wasn't block signal territory. It's it dark for everyone. Yeah. And, uh, and it just so happened we had in old Belleville. I looked out on the highway and the car looked just like Leroy Williams out there. And I thought, hey, we're all fired. You know, but fortunately it wasn't. But things just, you'd be surprised some of the things that happened that we luckily get by with. I mean, you weren't too nervous about it in block signal territory. Oh, no. But block signal. Black, west of Perry, there was no block signals from there to Amarillo. And uh, you get kind of nervous when you you got into a position like that. If they had if they had to operate by block by train orders right now on the UP over here, they'd be out of business. They wouldn't know what yeah. to do. They, they would be out of business until they got some of these old heads over there <laughs> and tell them what they could do. We headed in one out at Burnham. This train we were meeting, and we just barely got in the clear. And I thought, oh my God, this this could have been a terrible thing. And he said, this is really railroad, and I thought, no, this is crazy. <laughs> Harold Rhodes told Tom Sandlin in their one-on-one -on -one interview about one incident that injured a co-worker. I was working over at Forest City one time on a, we were doing a little work train work over handling gravel and everything, and, and we were about ready to get off and go to work, I mean, get off and go home, and we had shoved everything, shoved everything up a hill over there and the caboose was in front of the engine and the brakeman uh, was uh, on the other end of the caboose. He was going to cut the caboose off. We were going to go get in the car and go home. So 
he was he was all at Charlie Graves' his name, and he he didn't like railroad anyhow, but he had to make a living, so he railroaded. He was all when he come quitting time, he was always laughing, you know, and carrying on, just happy singing, you know. So we shoved those cars up that hill, and and in a minute. I didn't see him. I saw him lean over, and in a minute I heard him. And I thought, well, you know, Charlie back there, he's singing and everything like that. And uh, finally I told my fireman, I said, go back there and see what Charlie's hollering about. Well, he went back there, and when I shoved that rock up that hill, of course, the slack ran up the hill, and the drawbar on the caboose ran out. You know, it'll go out. And when I did, Charlie should have known better, but he laid his hand on that yoke. And when that slack came back down that hill, his arm, his hand was in there. And uh, I think, probably thinking about, he was the least excited man on the crew. But we took him to the hospital there at Forest City, and they couldn't do anything with him. And uh, they uh, asked him if he wanted to go to Memphis or come back to Little Rock. Well, his wife's a nurse at Baptist, so they brought him back to Little Rock. Of course, they had to amputate his hand. And I see, I don't, I see him every once in a while. He got a hook and. He can do things with that hook. I can't do it with my hand, I believe. Another story involved traveling in the middle of the night, and Rhodes says here, Guy was driving. That's a reference to Guy Winters, who I interviewed and will feature in future episodes. We uh, got a switcher and went to work down there. I think we would work 5.30 in the morning, so the, the crew did stay down there. We, uh, we all stayed here in Little Rock and usually had to get up about 3, 3.30 in the morning, you know, and gather everybody up and drive down there and be ready to go to work. One morning we left here, there was five of us, and I, guy was driving, I sat in the front seat and we had three men in the back seat. And we all looked like, you know, we looked like hell, if you pardon the expression. I mean, we never shaved and, you know, we just crowned you looking. And uh, going through, you go down, go down through England and down then you hit the highway and go to Stuttgart. And going through England, I noticed there's three, two or three state police cars, which is very unusual, you know. This is 4 o'clock in the morning, and it was really strange that they would be sitting like that. So we got down to the to where the road dead ended, and you turn right to go to Stuttgart, and there was somebody standing there with a flashlight and stopped us. And it was a policeman, and he come over to the other side, to the driver's side, and he won't know who we were and where we were going and all this. And he, of course, you have to see this, but he had his hand up, and I thought, that he had a radio to his ear. I really thought that. And uh, he didn't say anything for a minute, and all of a sudden he said, you, he pointed and he said, you three in the back, get out now, get your hands on your heads. Scared the hell out of me, I jumped out. But what this was up here, it was a shotgun. And they'd had three convicts escaping down at Cummins and they were looking for him. And we looked like convicts, I guess. Close enough. <laughs> Another time in Falft Roads, working in Memphis, Tennessee, shortly after the assassination there of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. on April 4, 1968. His wife, Betty, can be heard in the background as he led into this story, talking about the challenges to the families of railroad workers. We were away from home a lot. I probably, uh, when my kids were going up, I was away from home Half the time, would you say, Betty? Yeah. I don't know. A lot of women have, deserve a lot of credit for raising children and a man being gone all the time. She did a fair job. We earned, we earned <laughs> every bit of our railroad retirement. Plus, really, we should be getting the big chunk of it rather than the man. <laughs> yeah, right. 
we had uh, switch engines in Memphis, which were covered by engineers out of out of here out of Little Rock when they had a vacancy over there. Somebody laid off. You called, got called off the extra board here, and you went to Memphis to work switch engine. Well, one afternoon I got called to go to take the record to Havana, Arkansas. They had a derailment up there, and at that time I think we worked 14 hours. I'm not too sure. It was either 12, 14 hours. You know, one time we worked 16, and they gradually cut it down to 12. So we uh, we took the wrecker up there, and uh, we our time ran out up there, and. Uh, by that time they got the track clear and a train came through, so we got on a train and came back to Little Rock and uh, came home and cleaned up and ate and went to bed. It was about 5, 30, 6 o'clock. Of course, I'd been up all night long and I was worn out. So the next morning, uh, I was called, for, I think it was 4 or 4.45 to go to Memphis on uh, 26. So I got up and I was in the bathroom shaving and my wife, here come my wife, I mean this is 2.30 in the morning. My wife don't get up at 2.30 in the morning. I'll guarantee you. Anyhow, she came in and she says, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Memphis. She said, do you know they killed Martin Luther King over yesterday? And I said, no, they had, it had happened after I'd gone to bed. And I said, no, I didn't. She said, well, why don't you lay off? And I said, that's why I'm going, because somebody else done laid off. They ain't going to let me off. So we went over there, and we put the train away and, and went downtown. We stayed at a hotel down on Main Street and uh, went up went to bed, and Oh, I don't know, about 3 o'clock, 3.30, the train master called me, and he said, would you mind getting up and coming on down here? He said, they're going to they're, they're gonna stop all traffic on the streets at 5 o'clock. There will be no moving on the streets after 5 o'clock. I said, no, I don't mind. So uh, I got up, and then the crew got up, and we ate, and we got the last cab that we could find. Ordinarily, they wouldn't let six of you in the cab, but they did with us anyhow. We got down there and we sat around, sat around waiting for them. We had to get a delivery to the Southern and before they get the train ready to, to leave. And uh, so finally, the, the uh, train master come in from the office with a shotgun. I said, what's that for? He said, I'm going to take you. We had to walk all the way to the other end of the yard to get on the engines. He said, I'm going to escort you down there. And they had killed a man in there in the yards that day, looting or something. I don't know what it was all about. But anyhow, uh, we got down there and got on the engines, and what they did over at Memphis, it was a stub yard, and they built the train from the back end, and then the, we shoved the train out of the yard. The switch engine was on the back, but we shoved it out onto the main line. Well, we were backing out, and I looked back there about the third engine back there, and there's two or three guys in civilian clothes, and I asked that train master, I said, who is that? And he said, that's Memphis police. They're going to be with you to leave town. It was a little bit scary. I, You know, I didn't feel like anything was going to happen to us as far as that goes, but uh, I know they had a lot of problems obviously at that time. I went back over there a week later, worked at 359 switch engine, and I took my shotgun with me, and all the switchmen walked around there switching and had the gun strapped to their hips, and I had my shotgun on the engine. But like I said, I really didn't think anything was going to happen, but if it did, I wanted to be ready. The decline of the Rock Island began with a proposal in 1964 for the railroad to merge with Union Pacific, while the Southern Division, which included Arkansas, would be sold to Southern Pacific. At that time, Union Pacific didn't have a presence in Arkansas, and what is today part of Union Pacific was then Missouri Pacific. The proposal started what is said to have been the longest and most complicated railroad merger case 
at that time to go before federal regulators. As Rhodes discusses, the Rock Island stopped investing money to maintain its track and equipment. By the time the deal was eventually approved, the Rock Island was in such bad shape that the other railroads walked away from the deal, saying the cost to rehabilitate the infrastructure and meet union obligations were not worth the expense. The Rock Island and the Union Pacific file with the Interstate Commerce Commission back in the 60s, I don't know when exactly, to, and what was go, the deal was going to be the, the UP was going to take over the northern half of the Rock Island and the Southern Pacific was going to take over the southern half. Well, the, the ICC wallowed that around for 11 years. And by that time, the Rock Island had assumed that they were going to be taken over, and they had gone to what they called preventive medicine. Basically, what it was is to keep you from falling off. That didn't work all that well, but to keep the track just good enough to hold a train. We could run a train on. And uh, as a result, by the time uh, the Rock Island was about to fold, actually, uh, and the track was pretty bad between here and uh, actually between here and Perry, Arkansas, which is about 42 miles. It was 10 miles an hour. It took you four hours to go, and you try that about 1:30 or 2 o'clock in the morning. And so I left here one morning, and we didn't have firemen then, and I had a head brakeman, a good head brakeman. I don't think Robert ever ever shut his eyes. I don't know if he slept at home or not, but he didn't on the railroad. So we left here. And we finally got up to Perry, and the speed went up to 40 miles an hour. And, and going down through Perry, he went off hill and went down into Perry. They had a slower, 10 mile an hour slower. So I set the brakes, slow down. In a minute, I woke up. I'd gone to sleep. The train was sitting still. And I said, What's wrong? Robert says, You got the brakes set in? He says, You got the brakes set? I said, Okay. So I kicked the brakes off, and we went over around Ola, Berta, Ola or Danville, one other, had another slow order. I set the brakes, went to sleep. Woke up, the train stopped. I said, "What's wrong?" He said, "You got the brakes set." <laughs> I'll give the—I don't remember who the conductor was, but I'll give him credit. He never said a word on the radio. Finally, got to Boonville, and I got off, and, and of course the other crew, outbound crew, got on, drug by. The conductor got first thing he did, come on, what in the hell is going on up there? I said, "I was going to sleep. That's what was going on." That sleeping was back then. I was talking to somebody about this yesterday. Used to railroad. Depending on where you were on the division, uh, it happened here. Most of your work was at night, road jobs. And uh, they would get, to put it mildly, they'd get upset for sleeping on the job. Maybe that was good, that was bad in some cases. I don't know. Anyhow, nowadays, they recommend that if you're in a siding way, you're on the train, they recommend you take a nap. Back then, they'd want to fire you. It kind of galls me, to be honest with you. But uh, I don't know. So, of course, things have changed on the railroad. They, they figured out some better ways. Yeah, because you get called at midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning, and you go out in the yard, and you sit around there for an hour and a half, two hours, which is not unusual, and then you're up the rest of the night, sometime till 9, 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, you're going to get sleepy. That's all there is to it. And you just have to fight it off to keep them going to sleep. In the group discussion seven months later, Rhodes, Buddy Bryant, and Howard Smith talked about the stress of working for the railroad at that point. Rock Island was collapsing, basically. We ran from here to Perry, Arkansas, which is about 40, 45 miles, 10 miles an hour. You could never, you'd hog law every trip. Oh yeah, yeah. You just didn't get from one place to another. Oh, I, t I got mad one night. It, it, was, it was hard, you know, and a lot of, 
a lot of men were sick. You know, mine, I mean, they really had stomach aches and one thing or another because you knew that you, if the railroad didn't collapse, you'd get killed, you'd fix and lose your job. Yeah. In fact, I ended up in the hospital, seriously. But anyhow, uh, I, we went out of here on a local one night, went all the way to Boonville, and we were over at Waveland waiting on an eastbound train, and we all went to sleep. We'd been up all night. And... Uh, I woke, oh, I was working with Conrad, Conrad run the engine, I was, anyhow, I happened to wake up and here come the road foreman down the track. I told him, I said, wake up, here comes Thompson. He and I didn't like each other. And uh, he come up there and he went back there and I think maybe the brakeman was asleep on second unit, I don't know. He come up and, and made some remark about what we were doing. We stopped back this end of the siding so we'd get a run at the hill when the train headed in. He didn't understand, he's too damn stupid for that. But, we got to Boonville, and guess who was standing there? Mr. Ivy, Carl Ivy, who worked here, but he was a train master. And I told him, I said, now, we get to Boonville, there's going to be a company officer, and he's going to say something about this. And uh, so everybody just keep their mouth shut and go ahead on and don't say a word. Well, I got off, and Ivy walked up to me, and he said, what was going on down there, Mr. Rhodes? <laughs> and when he did, I lost it. I said, let me tell you one thing. I said, we've been busting our butts up and down this railroad for six, 14 hours then, day in and day out, you know, trying to get from one end of the railroad to the other without somebody having to come out and tow us in all night long, no place to eat. And by God, I'm not going to stand around and be criticized for something like this. He said, oh, I had to calm down. <laughs> he got me calmed down. And then the very next day, O Sparky was a conductor. They called us out to go to, uh, well, we went to Danville and then we in a cab, and then we went over. Got the engine went over to paper mill, and came back to Danville. We back, got back in in plenty of time, and the road foreman Thompson met us and told us what a good job we did. Mm. Well, you know, they had some. We had some good officers. I I, I was a local chairman. Howard was a local chairman, and uh, most of the officers were pretty good men. The end of the Rock Island came in March 1980. The railroad had been in bankruptcy five years by then, and at the request of creditor Henry Crown, a judge ordered the railroad to be shut down and its assets liquidated. Here's Rhodes talking with Tom Sandlin about where that left him. When the Rock Island went under, there were, uh, I was out of work about a year, I think. And of course, me at that age, that was in 80, 81. Uh, I couldn't do anything else but railroad. I could probably pump gas again. Yeah. And the, the younger, I felt sorry for a lot of the younger. Our house was paid for and our children were grown and I didn't have any bills as such. But a lot of the younger men, I felt sorry for them because they did. They had a big boat payment, their house payment and car payment and all that stuff. And a little bit of kids, they had to work. And a lot of them, as a result, had to leave Arkansas to go to work. Some of them went to work over there. They, eventually they hired uh, 12 engine men over on Missouri Pacific, and I don't know how many trainmen ended up over there, quite a few, I think, of course, some of the car men and one thing or another. But it was a bad thing, and that, you wouldn't believe, I'll tell you a story again about myself, when we knew within reason that the Rock Island was going to fold, and it, you thought about it a lot. You knew you were going to lose your job, you wondered what you were going to do, and this and that and the other. And I got to the point, and I'm not exaggerating, I thought at times I was going to die. I really seriously thought I was going to die. And finally I went to the doctor 
and he put me in the hospital and ran all kind of tests on the man, I guess. He said, ain't nothing wrong with you. He said, you got arthritis in your neck and shoulders. <laughs> but you'd be surprised at the men that had stomach trouble on the Rock Island. Well, sure. Yeah. And their livelihood was, it was going out from under them. Yeah. And uh, like I said, the Missouri Pacific across the river over there, but they couldn't hire everybody. They couldn't save everybody's jobs. They had guys scattered all around the country because, like I said, they went to railroad because that's what they knew. The younger men probably could have learned another trade, but that's what they knew. And it was a good job, you know. Yeah. It's a good paying job. They'd all go out and buy themselves a new car and a big boat and, uh, you know, and a fine house and all that stuff. And the pay was good until they quit coming in. Then that kind of messed things up. The Rock Island, I didn't have any problem with the Rock Island, except they were poor. Hell, I'm poor, you know. And it was a big, it was really a big kind of a culture shock, if you want to call it that, to go to work for the Union Pacific. Because them people got money. I mean, they spend it, too. But the Rock Island, you know, we were down here, we were kind of a, a stepchild of the Rock Island, more or less. We were all stuck off down here. Of course, the main line, you know, was north and south, and Houston to Chicago, and then out west to Kansas City and out that way. And uh, actually, in my opinion, over the years, I think they've made a big mistake by allowing this Rock Island to go under, especially between Memphis, out of Memphis through here to the west coast. Rock Island had the straightest railroad from Memphis to the West Coast, and they let it go under. If you'd like to hear the full interviews with Harold Rhodes, Buddy Bryant, and Howard Smith, as well as others I've digitized that were recorded by Tom Sandlin, you can find them on my website, hiblinradio.com. And I can't say enough about what a service Sandlin did by recording these oral histories, and I'm happy to help bring them to a new audience. Finally, you've heard the city of Perry mentioned several times in this program. The previous episode focused entirely on the history of the Rock Island Depot in Perry, which was built in 1918, and efforts to preserve it. Since then, thanks to the backing of the Arkansas Historic Preservation Program, the depot has been listed on the National Register of Historic Places. This means the state will provide guidance as we continue working to preserve the building. It will also enable us to apply for grant funding. For an update, I spoke with Buford Suffrage, president of the Perry County Historical and Genealogical Society, who has been overseeing the project and we'll hear about a minute or so of the presentation made during a meeting where the state approved nominating the depot. The audio of the meeting is a little rough. It was done online, given it was in the middle of the pandemic, but I think is audible. The effort to save the historic structure started in 2017, when we learned the short-line Little Rock and Western Railway which today operates about an 87-mile stretch of former Rock Island track, was planning to demolish the depot to expand a locomotive servicing shop. A lot of ideas were tossed around, and we eventually settled on a plan to move the depot to an adjacent lot now owned by the city of Perry. It used to be part of the Rock Island complex there, and in fact was where a water tank 
once stood for steam engines. Over the span of a year, we raised money thanks to the many people who made donations and found a house-moving company that was willing to handle the project, probably at a loss. So thank you to Combs Home Builders and House Movers. This couldn't have happened without them. In September 2018, steel beams were placed underneath the depot and it was lifted up, then moved to the back of the lot where it sat for 15 months until a foundation could be built, thanks in large part to the county and the donation of materials. In January of 2020, the house movers came back and placed the depot on the new cinder block foundation. Eight months later, the roof was replaced with donated labor and materials. We had a lot of great advice from Rachel Patton with the group Preserve Arkansas, which advocates for saving historic places that are endangered. In particular, she told us the best ways to pursue this project in a way that would maintain its historic integrity and make it more likely to be listed on the National Register. That's where Buford Suffrage and I started the conversation. Well, it was uh, it was a long process, but uh, that was our goal. And uh, as you said, it lent validity to the whole process. People can see that uh, we're serious about preserving this uh, historic structure. And uh, this also shows that the... Uh, State and the National Park Service is well behind it also. So it just strengthens the whole process, as I see it. And I'll play a clip here from the uh, meeting. This was December 2nd, 2020. Uh, the Arkansas National Register Survey Coordinator, Ralph Wilcox, gave a presentation to the State Review Board of the Arkansas Historic Preservation Program really detailing the uh, history and significance of the depot. The railroad changed everything. The temporary depot was set up at North Perryville, just three miles north of the county seat, and quickly attracted businessmen and other professionals. When a post office was established in 1899, the name had been shortened to Perry. In 1901, a permanent frame depot was built at Perry, measuring 18 feet by 68 feet, along with a large gravel platform, mail crane, outhouse, coal house, and cotton platform, um, as well as a single pen stockyard. The first permanent depot at Perry was built in 1901 by the Choctaw Line and was a one-story wood frame building with a wood shingle roof. It measured 18 feet by 68 feet and rested on a pile head foundation, or wooden piers. The present depot at Perry, which you see in a couple of historic photos, was constructed by the Rock Island Line in 1918 to replace the earlier structure. The 1918 depot housed segregated waiting rooms separated by a station agent's office as well as a freight room. The Perry Depot's significance uh, in the everyday lives of county residents was somewhat diminished after 1967 when Rock Island lost the federal government contract to carry mail and subsequently stopped passenger service the same year. However, the Rock Island continued to staff the Perry Depot for freight duties until 1980 when the bankrupt Rock Island ceased operations. Wilcox noted that fortunately, 
After the Rock Island shutdown, the depot wasn't abandoned. The short-line Little Rock and Western Railway was created in 1980 to operate a stretch between Little Rock and Danville, mainly to service a nearby paper mill at Perry, which owned the railroad for several years. Today, the short line is part of the Genesee and Wyoming, which operates more than 100 short-line railroads around the world. I asked Suffrage his thoughts while watching that meeting. Well, uh, I was impressed with it, and uh, I felt like they were on board with the project, certainly. And uh, it was something that was amazing to see after all we'd been through, I guess. <laughs> You'd have to uh, have been there from the first, like you and I were, and others, to fully appreciate all of it. But uh, I was uh, I was happy to see that uh, the enthusiasm about saving the depot. If it was lost, uh, that history would be lost forever. And so significant, too, for... Uh... Perry County, one of the few remaining Rock Island depots on that stretch of the track. Absolutely. And what one has to understand is when that railroad came through, Perry County was pretty much isolated, particularly at certain times of the year when the rivers around here were flooded. And uh, so it was a boon to have that railroad come through here for freight, passenger service, and so forth. Well, the process for the State Review Board to uh, hear this presentation, ask a few questions, took just under 15 minutes, and then they approved it on a voice vote. Great building. I'll second it. Okay. All right. We have a nomination and a second. Uh, call the question all in favor of this motion, please say aye. 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 Congratulations. And then uh, great news to get uh, less than a month later, a letter from the National Park Service saying that indeed it had been listed on the National Register. Well, like I said, I think that everyone involved saw the importance of saving this structure. So uh, probably to them, it was uh, more or less a no-brainer, which is why it uh, it came through so quickly. That would be my guess anyway. One key thing now is that this will uh, help us going forward in uh, taking the next steps to preserve it. As we uh, detailed in the previous podcast, we uh, moved the depot about 150 feet, still alongside the tracks. We've built a foundation for it. We've also replaced uh, the roof, which was uh, very significant. So it's in a good position now. And uh, leading up to this meeting, uh, you and uh, Rachel Patton with Preserve Arkansas met with an architect, uh, Gary Clements with Clements and Associates in North Little Rock, to look at what needs to be done next in the project. What did he think when... Uh, you guys walked through the depot. Well, we sort of looked at it from the standpoint of uh, what needs to be done first in order to preserve it, because uh, we certainly don't have the funds to uh, do a hundred percent restoration on it immediately, like like we'd like to do. We'd certainly like to do that, but those funds aren't available. And uh, so, after looking the inside, with some exceptions. 
is not in bad shape, so we don't have to worry about leaks. The building's pretty well protected, and uh, so his recommendation was that we work on restoring the outside of it first and uh, get that under control and then uh, then go for the inside. Yeah, because we did do so much work to make sure that uh, there wouldn't be any further deterioration to the inside, and fixing up the outside a little bit would uh, help with the appearance and uh, uh, the way people are looking at the depot, so it doesn't look uh, quite as ragged. Exactly, and uh, yeah, I've had positive comments by uh, people who were just impressed by the fact that the uh, roof had been redone. Not, not only was that good for preservation of the interior so that it would not be damaged, but it also greatly improved the looks of the depot. And uh, the depot situated in such a position that you can't miss it if you go through Perry. Of course, highways 9 and 10 split in Perry, 10 going west and 9 going north. And there, there's not a person that drives through Perry on either of those roads that does not see that depot. And uh, so it would be very impressive to uh, have the outside of it restored. I think that would uh, increase the enthusiasm that people would have and the confidence that the depot is going to be completely restored. And one key thing that this depot being listed on the National Register will enable is additional grant money, but it's not uh, free money. It uh, has to be matched. And uh, in this case, uh, we can apply for uh, grant money uh, that will require a two-to-one match. If we can raise 10000 we can get a grant for 20000 to uh, embark on the next phase of this restoration. That's true, and the uh, the architect estimated that uh, thirty thousand would go a long way towards uh, restoring the outside of the depot. Uh, I'm not sure that it would do everything to it that uh, we would like to do, but it would certainly uh, get it in a position where further deterioration would not take place, and as you stated early, uh, make it look good make it uh, something that uh, the people of Perry and Perry County could be proud of and uh, probably get more support from the citizens. That's Buford Suffrage, president of the Perry County Historical and Genealogical Society. Buford will uh, talk again soon. Yes, sir. Thank you, uh, Michael. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to The Rock Island in Arkansas. I'm Michael Heblin. This is an independent production of mine. The views expressed by participants are strictly their own, thanks to the many people who helped make this possible, including Tom Sandlin for sharing his recordings with me, Dr. J. Bradley Minnick for his advice, and Kevin Kilpatrick for voicing the introduction. That train left Memphis is half past nine Pulled in the little rock at 849 The version of the classic song Rock Island Line you're hearing in the background was by the little rock duo who call themselves Fret and Worry. That's R.J. Looney 
and Jim Measel. If you enjoyed the program and you're not a subscriber, you can become one at Apple Podcasts. The Rock Island Railroad may be gone, but it will not be forgotten. Thanks for listening. Rock Island Line.